Mutual causality and general systems theory. Okay. Mm-hmm. General yeah. systems theory. Yeah, the Dharma of Natural Systems by Joanna Macy. Okay. So we've been into this for already 20 minutes, but we'll turn the video on now. Um, so let's pick up where we left off in the five aggregates. If you can understand the five aggregates as a system in general systems theory, you can look at it as an open system or you can look at it as a closed system. But the important part is, is that there is something added, just like in general systems theory has the postulate that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Okay, an example of that is, is that um, uh, the carriage that Nargajuna took apart through uh, King Melinda's permission and laid all of the chariot parts out. Where is the chariot in all of these parts that are laid out? The answer is, is that when you bring all of those parts back together, now the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. All of those parts are just parts. But when you bring them together, now you have not just chariot, but you have chariotness. And what is chariotness is a is a form of transportation. Yeah. It's, okay, it's, yeah. so we can in modern times do exactly the same thing with an automobile. Yeah, with anything. Right? Yeah, <laughs> right out here in the yard, there's this car that's just all in pieces. <laughs> right, the motor over there and the wheels there and all. So, where the automobile comes in is not in the parts, but in the assemblage, correct order of the parts, so that the new additional thing, primarily for the automobile, is is that it's mobile now. It is, in Mm. fact, a form of transportation. That's not there in the parts. It's only when the parts are assembled together that transportation is possible. This is what the Buddha is getting at with the self. That the self is not in any one of the individual components of the five aggregates. There is no self in body. There is no self in feeling. There is no self in consciousness. Just bare consciousness. There is no self in this assemblage process that we go through in manufacturing things. And there is no self in all the spare parts that we keep on hand in form of memory in the Sankara. You put those things together and you've got something that is greater than the sum of the parts. And if you put that stuff together incorrectly, what are you going to wind up with is a selfishness. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if you put them together correctly, you come up with wisdom or altruism. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, that makes a lot of sense in the way it's worded. Like selfishness, like the 
there's a soul to it. There's mm-hmm. a permanency. Uh, this thing is going to be like this. No, forever. that's the whole point is, is that, well, here's the in- important point. They call it an eternal soul because they want it to be permanent. Because if it did have permanency to it, then there would be no fear of impermanence or no fear of change, no fear of rot, no fear of being eaten, no fear of death. Because there is no death. And that would fall under the category of like intentionalizing it, perceiving it that way, manufacturing it to your uses. Right, and the uses is I don't want to feel afraid, therefore I believe that it is uh, that I am permanent. Okay. And yeah. and in fact, if there's anything that the Buddhism has value at right from the get-go, if it's done correctly, is we have to confront our fear. We have to understand that, hey, I'm driven by fear. And the fear is the fear that the self is not permanent. It's not like the aggregates. The aggregates are real. The, the self is not real. And yet the self-preserve instinct that arises with the aggregates means that there is fear. And the fear is the fear for the self. Now, it's actually the exact same fear as whether you're staring down a lion or there's an alligator got you by the leg or it's the bully coming around the corner. Yeah, yes. It's the same fear. Yeah, it really is because you have to be you have to be impressed. You have to be impacted really hard to feel afraid. Just like you have just when you feel bliss, you have to be impacted by something really beautiful, something agreeable to your mind. Uh, that is true and it is possible. But there is also the kind of fear that doesn't rise to that quantum level. Okay. Okay, it doesn't rise to that threshold, and therefore it would be considered subconscious fear. And that subconscious fear then can be re- uh, referred to as stress uh, or anxiety. And a lot of people who were depressed actually have anxiety. Oh, yeah, hand in hand. And yet, if they were really awake, they would recognize that they're all tense and strung out and, and hopped up. Yeah. <laughs> but to respond to it by acting depressed. Yeah, because and that's who they are. Have, right. The psychologists have found a very strong connection between anxiety and depression. But in that level, it's all subconscious. They don't know what's going on, not at the conscious level, as opposed to this other level where it really impacts us, like beauty or fear. Yeah, like, and the level of I like and I don't like, not on the level of I love and I, it's more like on that subtle level of like, this is what makes me do this. This is what makes me buy the car, buy five cars. You know, this is what makes me run around the house. This is what makes me like the little restless, you know, um, well, you could just call it desire on that little level of I, I need to exist. I, I am. Exactly. 
and look how much human behavior and or doing and are going is done because of that. That anxiety, that tension that drives us to keep going. That, uh, In fact, uh, many of the people would use the word boredom. Why don't you stay home? Well, I'm bored. Right? And so they want to go out. Right? Okay. Mm -hmm. But boredom, actually, if you look at it closely, means that you're restless. Yeah, no, yeah, of course. I mean, have you ever been bored? Be bored for long periods of time and tell me you don't feel like anxiety. Like that's what people usually feel if you let it go on and on and on. That's exactly right. Now, the question is, is that at what level of intensity and how long does it take while they can maintain not being aware of it at all? And so they say, I'm bored because they're only half awake to it. Yeah. In other words, they are, they know that they are in a state of dukkha, but they think that I can get rid of this feeling of boredom by going out and doing something. Yeah. Yeah, like like when ah, people so say cop. Uh, um it's simple it's like one thing that really changed I think where I started to finally make progress is when I heard this monk say um your suffering isn't in things. Suffering isn't in that is the second noble truth exactly yep yeah the suffering is not out there well there is a lot of people out there in suffering that's not what we mean but that's theirs that's not yours you're creating your own everyone is creating their own suffering yeah, That's what it was, the whole second noble truth is about. Yeah, it was like, I guess the way I could say that we were talking about, like when I was on the cushion, it was similar to what Adrian Cha said when he says, like, when the world is flipped upside down, you'll never see a human as a human. You'll see them as determinations, as, as thing, like as a arising, as an arising, something arising, as a heap, as an aggregate, as, you know. It felt like that for a while. I'm not saying I'm like that right now, but like somebody was talking to me and I was like, is that a real, like, is that just animated? Like there's no actual physical thing in that sense, like a constricted thing. Like it was just, you know, a hand moving and beautiful actually. (laughs) Well, uh, going back to this, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The reality is then is that there is no self. Just like in, in the reality in the car is there is no transportation. Okay. Dog crisis averted. <laughs> uh, The transportation is actually not in the car itself. The transportation is in the observer who gets in the car 
and has the sensation and delusion that he is in transportation. But the car is just sitting there, spinning its wheels, so to speak, as far as the car is concerned. uh, Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Like, the car is, is, there's no, you can't say the car is a carness. Like, this is a Maserati, you know. Mm -hmm. This is a Toyota or whatever. And yet, uh, some people will go so far as to actually name their car, like Nelly Bell. (laughs) He's one of the more famous ones back in the 1950s. Uh, But um, we give the car personality. We give it a self. And the self is completely delusional. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, if it's delusional to give a car a personality and a name, isn't it almost equally idiotic for humans to do the same thing with humans? The only reason that we do that is because we're trained by other humans to do it. Yeah, it's, 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 and it's not even real. It's more like a thinking process. It really is. It's not a thing that happens all the time, like you said. And it's supported by the instincts. That if, if, the, uh, if the human behavior and the human thinking pattern went against the instincts, then uh, it wouldn't have lasted. But in fact, the four primary instincts that we have is territorial. And look what humans have done with it. Uh, the dogs leave the territorial instinct as a territorial instinct. Humans have turned everything into a territory, especially intellectual knowledge. So the Buddha would actually refer to the territorial instinct as a thicket of views, my views. What I believe, what I hold, all of the concepts are uh, things that I carry. And so that's our territorial instinct. We instinctually like what's close and what we know, and we instinctually despise and are fearful of the things that we don't know. Yeah, but the reality is you can only know. That's another thing that, I'm sorry, I apologize. Well, I was just about to say, uh, this is racism. This is the otherism. I don't know those people, therefore they're, they, they're bad. We're Christians and they're Muslims, therefore they're bad. They're dangerous. We know all about it. We saw 9-11 and case closed. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but go ahead now. You, you were about to say. Um, no, I was just simply going to say another thing about practicing. Like, I wouldn't, I just practicing this because it all started with the feeling practice like it, it really is starting from that point because that's the point where most of us are like we're always in the feeling um and it's interesting to see that how feeling is created in the sense of like postulating an assumption or like kind of like saying that you know something creating a knowledge but in the sense like I can't even know myself because there's nothing to know there. And that's what I know. That's what I know. I know that there's this, not that there's something, some assumption. Assumption. That's the bizarre part about it is like when you're in that, it's like 
it, like you said, it really felt like the body was kind of like alive. Uh-huh. Well, one of the ways that we can describe it for people is, is that the self is a moving target. It's not fixed. It's yeah. constantly in motion, and we have the delusion that it's fixed. But it's not even like, I feel like it's even like, it's just the senses interacting, well, right? Like when I touch, I touch, that's just touching and not me touching. There's touching consciousness. There's touching consciousness, not touch me. There's just touching, for, there's the form, there's the consciousness, and then there's the recognition of it. Yes. Say those again. It's like there's, there's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's uh, the, the, the consciousness of the, like, the actual recognition of me touching or me touching, right? And then there's, like, the consciousness itself and then the hands, the form, and then the recognition of those two interacting or consciousness and form. Mm -hmm. That's so how I see it. Consciousness like, had both things to it, but there was still no need for me that the me is something that we're adding to it that um that is part of that which is greater than the sum of the parts uh and that that's kind of funny because um here's something a very simple example that winds up being extraordinarily complex and that is, is that on a chessboard, I think there's what, eight times four. So there's 32 pieces plus the board itself, 33 pieces. And yet look how many different ways those pieces can be arranged on the board. Yeah, a lot. And, and the sum total of all of those different ways that the pieces can be arranged upon the board is called the game of chess. So imagine now a human being, how many different ways that we can be arranged. And I'm not talking about body parts being cut up and moved around, but rather the complexity uh, that is there within the instincts and the way that our society has used those instincts to build the kind of society that we have that's only semi-functional. Now, it's partly functional because if it wasn't functional at all, we'd have either chaos or something worse, like the American government. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where everything is just raw corruption all day, all the time. But our society itself is actually mixed in the sense that much of the suffering in fact we've got hospitals and that cures corona 19 what would it be like if we had corona 19 plus no mask plus no hospitals well not good <laughs> we'd die really quickly all right well we'd have a reduced population for sure um and that uh so our society does have benefits. <laughs> Maybe the benefit is, is that it provides at least a toilet. 
Okay, yeah, yeah, I see. Or the I know shit to go into, as opposed to that the shit's all over the place. <laughs> I think that's what it's for. It's just like a car, and it's, it's used for that. Right. So, uh, in, in that way, this you could say that our society then would be ordinary or normal right view. As opposed to all shit all the time would be wrong view. There is no uh, retribution. There's no mother, no father. Everything is dog eat dog. Uh, survival of the fittest and no other rule. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> well, that's what we write. Uh, humanity came out of. Yeah, yeah, we kind. Well, what do you mean? Like we came out of like uh, like the worst world ever? Well, let us say it this way. If we go far enough back in time, us humans were nothing but alligators eating each other. Yeah. Well, and, and a strange question would be, well, I don't know if this is going to sound kind of weird, but an alligator has aggregates too, right? Like they have a feeling, mm-hmm. they have a mind and a body. In some sense like that. When you put the alligator um, stuff together, you have an alligator, the five aggregates of an alligator. But here's the thing that's really amazing. Everything that you can do that an alligator can do, you do with the part of the brain that the alligator has and nothing else. He's got a reptilian brain, and that's all. But everything that he can do that you can do, that brain can do. And that's how you do it. Yeah. So the uh, the alligator can wag his tail and walk on the shore and, well, <laughs> lay an egg I'm not sure about because we don't have that, that part of the anatomy. But basically anything that, that they can see, alligators can see. They can chew their food. They digest food. All of that stuff is done by the reptilian brain. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Everything that they can do, we can do. But the things that we can do that they can't do is enormous. Like we can catch alligators and they cannot catch alligators. Yeah, yeah. They eat alligators, but they can't catch one. They don't know how to do that. Okay. So, um... But when they aggregate, the alligator's parts aggregate into alligatorness. And you can say that the alligator does have a sense of self because it has self-preservation instinct built in. You could go so far then to say his alligator is all me all the time, basically. I don't see there's much else of us other than a self in alligator. That's what makes us human is, is that we can see beyond just the immediate needs of the self-preservation instinct that the alligator has. This lodged in that same part of the brain where our feelings are kept. Yeah, it's like we're like a lot of animals combined almost except for the frontal cortex. I would say that we're the sum total, basically, of all of the various kinds of animals. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. we've evolved that way. And that's what I'm like, because in the sense, is that's so weird, because 
I can see where that view, that wrong view would come where it's like there's an eternal person walking through every single like uh, internal like consciousness, you know, something that lasts in everything. But every aggregate will cease one day. So I guess it's not that eternal in that sense. Well, the fear of death, which I imagine the alligators have. I mean, if you look at the way alligators behave, they have a fear of death, just like <laughs> that which they're eating. Yeah. Okay, so that, that fear of death has been the spark or the hallmark or the communication system of the self-preservation instinct that's built right in uh, all the way back. So you could say then that our instinctual behaviors come from the more primitive parts of the brain. And that very little instinct is coming from the frontal cortex, which is another way of saying that human beings are human in their full intelligence very little time during and throughout the day that most people are living in instinctual ways yeah for sure because they're motivated by their feelings rather than by their wisdom mm -hmm. so if we're going to be fully human that means we're really looking at what's going on taking information in processing it correctly without stuff out of the past and coming up with something that's fairly close to reality. Yeah, it's like um, new. It's always new when you do it right. It's never old. It's always new when you do it right. Always new. This is, in fact, exactly why the Buddha in Sutta number 117 in the Majjhima is called the Great Forty. The reason why it is... Um, or this is actually the working definition of noble right view. The working definition is the investigation of states, the investigation factor, the wisdom factor of keep looking, keep investigating. That's one's right view. Yeah. Which is actually really profound because normally what people do to get a view is they look and almost like they take a, uh, an internal snapshot or a photograph and that that's what they remember. So whenever they um, <clears throat> want to look at something, they don't bother to look at it again. They just remember what it looked like in the photograph that they took at one time in their mind. Yeah. And they keep coming up with old information because we don't, because we're too lazy to get a new version of it. We I mean, that's uh, that's what I recognize when I intend to want something. Usually, that's unwholesome. It's usually, and I saw that today a lot. It's like you'll affiliate a thought with a memory, and that memory will create nostalgia. Well, that's what we call it. Like I, I call mm -hmm. it that in the sense. Uh, and what is of... nostalgia but love for what we already know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's discontentment instead of like just peace and satisfaction. It's like craving for something that can't be found. It's exactly. Nostalgia is the loving or the wanting of something that we know when in fact that's gone now. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in, in that way, we can begin to see that 
right view means that we keep coming back to what is new now. Always coming back to the now to get new information. To keep looking, to keep investigating, to look at what you're doing, to keep watching the moment. This becomes our new habit. As yeah. opposed to the old habit of thinking that we already know something. And that's actually, in a way, hard work because we spent our whole lives getting up enough information. So now that I know, I don't have to learn anymore. Yeah, we're all looking forward to that after high school. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To where, in fact, whatever you were learning in high school, you probably don't even need anyway. Somebody set up a curricula 50 years ago, and now you still got to follow that. And in fact, uh, because of cost and, and other rules and regulations, some of the best stuff of education has now been removed. Like music and art. Yeah, yeah. Civics. Oh, yeah, yeah. They took that out already. If they would have left school to be civics, art, uh, music, and very little else, you would have had a good education and you would have enjoyed it. I know. I, that's what I say. It's like the basics first and then the arts after. Mm -hmm. Like just the basic language and everything like and then literature later because literature is an art, I think, like in my opinion, well, like grammar and everything. Why, why not do um, a coffee table version of, um, of the history of art for second graders? <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. Why, why, why do we keep making them try to read in a hurry? Well, because again, it's like we, well, this is my experience is they want, they don't, they don't teach us to believe in ourselves. Like we, we already feel inadequate enough in the high school because you know we're see we're told what to do mm -hmm. you know yeah. that there have been many experiments about schooling of how to school a child but all many of them would like to but they wind up not having the facilities to allow the children to educate themselves the way that the child wants to educate himself and that the teachers are um, at nothing much more than guides and question answerers and um, uh, and that kind of <laughs> Not even, no. I mean, I experienced once a teacher that literally did nothing for the whole year. Like, absolutely nothing. I, he was really sad, though. You could tell he was very sad. Like, you know, he did not like his job. <laughs> He was not inspired. No, that's another thing. That's what I make makes great teachers is when they're happy doing what they like, like what they want. It's so weird. That's this contradiction, no. Because you said something really profound last time, which is like we never let experience actually contact us. Like in the sense of like we never let it actually like we never see it for what it is. Therefore, we never actually get inspired by anything. Nothing mm -hmm. new, nothing fresh. Right. But if we would see it as fresh, then we can be inspired by it. Yeah. That's what the real, that's what the Dhamma is really all about, is to inspire people for their best. To inspire us. Here's an example of that, and it goes back to something that we were talking about earlier. And recently I've been using this example, so we'll continue to use it. 
not that I'm a big fan of donuts. I don't eat them often, but um, there is one concept called Zen and the Art of Donuts. <laughs> and there's also the issue of uh, the danger of donuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and let's go back to the Zen and the Art of Donuts it was something that a couple of years ago that I was doing with Willie. And it seemed to have worked really, really well. And that is that you take donuts to work. To give as a gift. Donna, donation for all of your friends. And Willie was unhappy because half the donuts wind up going home with the janitor. And I said, well, the janitor was happy, wasn't he? Yeah, that's what matters, right? Uh Uh-huh. And so Zen and the Art of Donuts, the reason we even use Zen is because of Zen and the Art of Archery. The whole thing about the archer and Zen is to perform correctly the movements of drawing the arrow, drawing the bow, pulling it back like that, and letting the arrow fly. Mm -hmm. We don't care where the arrow goes. The question was, did it get shot correctly? Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right. To do it correctly. Let's go through the motions of doing it correctly. So this is what we mean by Zen and the art of donuts is if you give them with a good heart, it doesn't matter what happens to the donuts. Mm-hmm. That in fact the guys that didn't eat the donuts were really happy that really brought the donuts anyway. <laughs> yeah. And so it's not about what happens to the donuts, it's the fact that you did it correctly. But yeah. now let's go to another item or another way of looking at donuts. Just as an example. Is is that most people like donuts they're delicious they're attractive uh some companies like duncan will go to great lengths to make them interesting looking and attract crispy cream Uh, yeah crispy cream put all kinds of things in them um (laughs) and so they're quite desirable and Mm -hmm. they're intended that way but if someone let us say is uh ill with a particular disease, maybe diabetic, or maybe they're trying to lose weight, then for them to be successful in their program, they have to have a new way of looking at donuts, a different view. Yeah. And so for them, what they need to do is to see the danger in the donuts. If one can see the danger in the donut, when we perceive the donut, then we can have a different idea about whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. And when you have the idea then of mixed of, oh, I like it because I love it and it's delicious, but I also don't want it because it's dangerous. This is a good point in time for us to recognize, okay, now I have a choice because I can see both, I can see both sides. 
And that's guaranteed to start changing some behavior. But when we begin to see more of it as dangerous and we do see it as in delightful, then we'll start to avoid it. Now we're beginning to see dukkha. All right. So now I offer you everything that you've ever been doing. We can call a donut. In the sense that we continue to do things because we can see the benefit, we see the liking of it. And part of that liking is, is because it's the easy way that I've been yeah. doing it that way all along. I've been behaving in herd instinct. I've been behaving according to uh, uh, territorial instincts, according to the way that I've learned it in society. And that's the easy way to do it. That's the delicious way to do it. Delicious. I don't think and it's delicious. <laughs> until we begin to see the danger in yeah. continuing to do that. And when we begin to see the danger in it, that's when we begin to see the dukkha. To yeah. see that that donut is dangerous, even though it's not a round circle full of whatever we talk about as a donut, but now the, the donut is, for instance, getting angry at a certain thing. In fact, I just talked to Kat about him getting angry at people because they weren't wearing their mask. <laughs> getting angry with those people who are not wearing their mask was delicious for him. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. It's, we can get righteous. We're right. Those people ought to wear those masks. They're, being, they're doing danger. But Kat was not able to see the danger he was doing to himself. Mm, yeah. And we see that our anger is dangerous. It's not delicious. That no. danger is always harmful. That no one ever wins an, an argument. <clears throat> no, no one ever does. I mean, no one. So, this is really what the first and second noble truth are all about, is learning to see the danger. To see that danger. And, and look at the source of the danger. So we could actually use the word dukkha and translate it that into the word danger. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to suffering. It's not necessarily suffering itself because the suffering is the aftermath. No, what we need to see in the dukkha is the potential suffering. Yeah, yes. Yeah, you're sounding a lot like Somebody I've heard um, on a YouTube channel, there, there are a few monks that they talk, and they talk a lot about per the perception, of the correct perception of danger in sensuality and things like that. Because mm -hmm. that's really the, mis the biggest misperception about... Oh, now that's a donut for you. <laughs> and a cigar. <laughs> yeah, and that also brings kind of a remembrance of a sutta verse, because you said that the right view is always everything arising new. And it's funny because I kind of brings me back to that where this, I, I don't know who it was, but there was this um, um, lay person that he went back to the home and he said, and they asked him, what are the views of the Buddha? And he's like, I really can't tell you what they are, except that he, you know, that there is suffering and then that he teaches that there is no suffering. But according to like other things besides that, like, no, he doesn't have any views. Ever. There's right view is that he has no view, really. Like in the sense of like clinging to things like in the mind. Mm -hmm. So 
if you can think of it this way, this word view has some double entendres, even like the word ditti in Pali has some double entendres to it, or it has multiple meanings of the word. Uh, an example of that would be, uh, let us say, going to an overlook that has the sign of, um, uh, what is it, scenic view. Okay. All right. Now, when people go to see that scenic view or even take a photograph of it, then the photograph becomes a scenic view, and the photograph is not a scenic view. The memory of a scenic view is not a scenic view. That what makes it a scenic view is because it has a sense of awe, a sense of grandeur, a sense of vista. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's sort of like they've lost it when they go for movies from the, the big screen of a movie theater to the size of a television. Yeah. And you lose a lot of it. That when things are big and majestic, that's what makes it scenic. All right. Which means that if you really want to get the experience of that scenic place, you have to keep going back there and looking at it. You can't take a photograph of it and expect to get that same result. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, what we do, though, is we don't keep looking at things new. We think that we know what it is. And so we don't bother to take a look at that. And yet this is the entire teaching of the Buddha, is to keep looking. Yeah. Note it well and let it pass, but keep noting, keep looking, keep investigating, keep watching. Yeah, that's one thing. One thing that really kind of nailed it in two is when this, this uh, author was speaking about how the, and you spoke about, and I guess I never kind of clicked it together that, we're always looking for an effect and we're always looking for the cause, but there is never a point. Like I kind of, one question that kind of blew my mind that came out of my mind. I was like, Whoa, what the heck was like, I was eating a mango and I was like, where does the taste start? Does it start in the mango or in my tongue? Like, and I'm like, well, what kind, what kind of question is that? Like, that doesn't even, <laughs> Like in the sense of like, like I kind of ate it with mindfulness instead of like, like thinking it's a mango or whatever. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting sense because this this uh, author spoke about um that the difference between Paticca Samuppada and every other causality view is that there's never an effect. There's no cause. It's just arising at that point and ceasing be conditioned by this there's only conditions there's no there's no such thing as like like a, a beginning point or an or or an end in that sense i i, I does that make sense not only does it make sense but you could you're getting you're getting at or pointing at what the buddha refers to as the imponderable so that's how it's being translated okay is the four things that are not worthy of our attention at all. Okay. And that it's 
but it's stated in a stylized kind of way. But when you unpack your stylization, you can see the generalization in there. Okay. The first one is, what's the beginning? Well, we can think of the, bang, the Big Bang Theory, but there's still an argument about what happened before the, the bang. What was the fuse that said it all? The story yeah. I like is that there was some sort of giant laboratory in the sky and the god, whatever was operating this laboratory, mixed a couple of chemicals together. He had an explosion. He blew himself up and everything else, including the lab, and all we got left was the universe. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be fun. But we don't know. And the yeah. Buddha is saying that we do not know not on the original cause, but if you think about it, we don't know most of the causes because we don't have the cause and effect from the original time. That in fact, we don't even know how we got from the Dark Ages to the Middle Ages. We don't know how we got from the Middle Ages into the Age of Enlightenment, whatever that was with the guillotine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so there is so much complexity to history that we really don't know. In fact, one of the things that they're really arguing over right now in the United States is that they have a white racist version of the American history. Yeah. And so it needs to have some stuff added to it, according to some. Oh, Maybe yeah. the best thing to do is just to not have history lessons in school at all. That's what I was thinking. Because the kids don't like it much anyway. Now, ancient history is interesting, but yeah, it doesn't yeah. have any political stuff to it much. So, um, the idea then is that we don't know where things get started. And we can just leave it at that. In other words, we don't even know where you came from. Well, yeah, and, and that's exactly what I'm saying. It's like this, like the idea that you there's a start up on the Internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the, the idea that there's a starting point to this. Like to anything. Is like you can't say, oh, this smell like my nose arose, you know, my body arose. Okay, you can kind of travel back in time, but you can keep going and you'll end up to a point where you don't know. There's yeah. too much complexity. Exactly. Not and, only but that, that, but the reality is, is that there is so much happening right now, mm -hmm. so fast, that actually the real scientific way of looking at causality, they got to it by, by asking the question, why is the speed of the of light the speed of light? The answer is, is that the speed of light is not the speed of light. Light travels at a whole bunch of different speeds. Why? And what's the ultimate limit? Yeah. Well, is and the answer is the, the newfound subject that they're just beginning to, a new science called the science of causality. What causes things? Mm -hmm. If light is a wave, what causes it to be a wave? And we begin to understand that something is happening at an enormously high rate of speed, way, way faster than the nanosecond. That we've yeah. got nanoseconds, we've got a billionth of a second pretty well wired. 
But what happens at a billionth of a billionth of a second, we don't have a clue. But we do know something is happening at that level, at that rate of speed, and it's happening a hundred trillion times all at once. A hundred trillion, no, not a hundred trillion. (laughs) Gosh, trillions of trillions of times a second. Trillions of trillions of things are happening. Yeah. And that's how it felt. And all we see is kind of the top surface of that. Yeah. Every molecule has got electrons spinning around. Every molecule is bumping into the near space of other molecules and twisting around, some of them in uh, 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 molecules and some of them not. And this is just at the physical level. They're really uh, at a loss as to how air moves and how water moves. They're just beginning to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the sense that water wants to go into a spiral, but we keep trying to force it down a pipe and it doesn't go down. So the way to remove the resistance of the pipe as it's going down is to make the, the pipe twist the way that water wants to twist. And then you can have water going at a, at a, a, a almost a, a resistant less rate, easy to pump. Yeah. Okay, so this is the point that I'm talking about. We do not know so much, especially about how things got got started. But then at the other end of the stick, and that is is that the Buddha is talking about another imponderable, is that we do not know the result of actions. Yeah, yeah. And that's a Uh, free... Actually. A lot of superstitions are built upon they they know the result of actions. Yeah. But a lot of what we have to do as human beings, the work that we have to do, that we give ourselves to do, is to approve to ourselves that if I do this, that will happen. For in fact, it might not. That's That's the thing. That's the thing. The name and form in the sense of intention. Like you, like that's one thing that I notice about myself is, or like myself, that when it arises with an intention, it's always kind of assuming something, assuming, 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 like, and then one thing that it kind of jumps at me that's very obvious is like, well, this body, I don't even have to think in terms of like a, a lot of parts, but this whole body itself is a part. It's not a whole, it's a part of a whole or something like that. Or you could, I don't like to say like, you know what I mean, but it's like, it is a part and it doesn't belong to me because it's a part. It's actually a part of the environment upon, uh, that surrounds you. Yeah. And it doesn't belong to you. The question is how, how far out in that surrounding do we go? Yeah. But, but once you be say, once you start to con like, this is the experience, like, contemplating on the not self or like satisfaction automatically brings about that contemplation of not self because you're uh, you're looking for what's causing self to arise like automatically so then i get this feeling of like 
it's almost kind of a question I also wanted to ask if this is kind of a, a, a kind of mistake that I'm doing. What's like I get into these really like this doesn't happen all the time, but this happened today where it was like it's almost like you kind of get I don't want to say stuck in a state of like almost just like you keep observing. Perhaps you could use the word we cling to a certain state. It's not that it sticks us it's that we stick to it. Yeah, like there was this. I, and that's one thing that really kind of popped out at me. It was like I was experiencing this really joyful state and I kept like keep pushing it and I kept trying to push it to see how far it would go. And I, and I ended up getting almost my body became almost hot, like really hot. And I was like, OK, there's this feeling. Now, why is it here? Well, feeling arises because of contact. OK, well, contact arises because of thinking most likely we're thinking of something well you remember this feeling isn't the ultimate thing and then it left and then in my body i felt like a cool wind just like a like a coolness like a the matter became in the state of like cold it was cold you know <laughs> in that sense but it was interesting because it's like i can't say the thought created that i can't say the thought created this feel like you can't say it started at the it's like everything is arising together almost like it's almost an interesting thing like it's almost like this is here and then boom it's like almost one thing changing and during uh-huh it's it seems that way at least well what will happen is that as your mindfulness gets sharper and sharper you will begin to see rather than things co-arising is, or that they arise together, but one of them is the leader. Okay, okay. And that you can begin to see the distinctions that, yeah, things do arise together, but they are interdependent. And okay. one causes the other, and they influence each other. Yeah, yeah. And that's okay. the part that uh, that is the... It's... Honestly, like I want to, I wish I could say what I want to say, but I can't like, cause it's like, it was a weird, it was kind of like a, this whole, um, I guess, exposition or discourse. I don't know what the Buddha called it. Like, well, the Dhamma, he could, like, if you see Paticca Samapada, you see the Dhamma. And it was like a weird, um, like this teaching in itself carries the whole package of what, like, like the whole, it's like in itself, a practice. Mm-hmm. It's not like a thing like I used to I, I used to think it was like the ultimate question, but it really is just like here right now in this body. What is happening? What is happening in this mind and body? And then I don't know. I guess it's just weird. That's because, the investigation to make. Yeah. What is happening right now? What's happening right now, which takes us then away from these imponderables about what used to happen and what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. What that's... used to happen is what was the beginning of it all, and what's going to happen is what's the result of comma. And what we're saying is let's stay in the here now and stop worrying about the past and the future. Now, there's actually only uh, two that we've covered, and there's two more that I'd like to go ahead and finish off of, of the imponderable since we started on them anyway. Please. And so I'll, I'll give you the third one in the form of a question. And that is, what's going to happen to you after you're, do- after you're dead? Nothing. 
all right, what's going to happen to the Tathagata? What's going to happen to the Buddha after he's dead? Nothing. I mean, the five aggregates, you know, break up and that's it. How do you know that? Well, because right now in this, I mean, everything is arising and ceasing. So when the body breaks up, there is no more, like, in the sense, well. Well, what about all of these magical stories? It just doesn't make sense because the body is itself. Okay, it it's, doesn't, it's, make, doesn't make sense. But here's where we come to yeah. eventually is, is that we really don't know what's going to happen to you after you're dead. You don't know what's going to happen to the Buddha after he dies. We really just don't know. And that's yeah. okay to not know that. Yeah. I can live a really happy, wonderful life without having to give a flying rip about what comes next. Because we don't know. Nobody knows. Yeah, because whatever happens next is like, well, what happens next? And then if the we, next. Right. And, if we yeah. don't know what's next, according to uh, the law of karma, that just because they pull the trigger doesn't mean that the bullet goes off. And just because the gun is aimed at that person doesn't mean that that person gets the bullet. We don't know what the future is going to be. So we don't know what the future is going to be in the next five seconds. How could we possibly know what's going to happen to us after we're dead? We don't know. So you would then say that every idea of truth and the sense of like objective truth outside of myself is, is basically a delusion. Because the delusion it, comes in when we think we know what it is. Exactly. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. The assumption, the the clinging kind of moment. The clinging is is that we not we think we know what's going to happen when in fact we don't. Yeah, and and that then, there's yeah. it, that there's pretty good evidence that there is no Christian God, but whether there's a Christian God or not is really quite irrelevant. If there's no self, and I'm pretty well sure that there's no self, because I've done quite a lot of investigation on that. And, there, <laughs> and if there is no self for God to kick around, no soul for him to kick around, then whether he exists or not is kind of irrelevant. Yeah, and then it's he almost can't interesting. Get to me now, he can't get to me when I'm dead. Whatever happens to me after I'm dead, there's no soul for him to kick around. So the Buddha, like, the Buddha only knows the moment. There is no such thing. That's why he, I remember. That's, yeah, that's why it. he calls himself Tathagata. That's what it means. <laughs> that's a good let's name. Stay with, let's, stay with the, let's stay with what he is, because we don't know what ain't. <laughs> we don't know what's in the past is gone. We don't know what's in the future is yet to be. And we yeah. don't know what happens to the Buddha after he's dead, and we don't know what happens to me. Pretty much, I mean, and but, but there is this weird because people think like, what survives after death? Well, something. I don't think. I don't think. I don't. I don't think anything survives in the sense of a self. And and I don't think anything survives in the sense of a soul. I just don't know. And and but it's definitely going to be something weird. <laughs> well, but uh, but until it happens, 
Yeah. It's an imponderable. It's not worth our time or effort. It's not our wise attention. What is our wise attention is, is this suffering? Is this dukkha? Yeah. Yeah. Can I okay. see the danger? Yeah. It, it's dangerous because it's delusional. And yeah. Ha so the imponderables are dangerous territory for us to get off into. Mm -hmm. Now, just to top it off, there's one more. Okay. And the way to speak of it is we do not know the extent of the human mind. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, Imagine it like this. In 500 BC in Greece, those people had no concept of what we take for granted. Cell phones and whatnot. Okay. In fact, 50 years ago. No one would have thought of a cell phone with all the features and benefits that a common cell phone has now, including it's got a camera, it's got a movie camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can play games on it now and everything. Yeah, you've got games that you can play, and, and more than that, you've got enough storage on a cell phone to hold the entire town's library of books. Yep, yeah. <laughs> I have That's all of the other stuff, too. <laughs> okay, yeah. so... Uh, we do not know the extent of what the human mind is capable of doing. Yes, yeah. And now that we have AI coming, we certainly don't have any clue about it. So it is also true that we do not have um, the, the ability to see the future or to um, put an idea or a thought into our own head about what our mind, our own mind is capable of. Mm -hmm. We don't know what our mind is capable of until we actually bring in that capability. Yeah. You don't know what your own mind is capable of. And so generally, most people don't know what poor Johnny is because they've never been into it. They don't know what it is. And so they have magical ideas about it. Yeah. That's the problem with Buddhism is people think they know what something is and when in fact they don't. We don't know. This is this is in fact one of the things to point at. You know of in the of the there are ten fetters. Yes. I've heard of the the first three are the fetters that can be eradicated by seeing. Okay. Who am I, the society we live in, and doubt about what is and what is not the path to freedom? Yes. Then the next two, ill will and greed, which are actually part of the uh, primary cause of the second noble truth. And so Fetters 4 and 5 is getting out of our lust, getting out of our anger, getting out of our ill will. This is tough to do. And if you don't have the right skills to do it, which came with the, the eradication of the first three fetters, I mean, Christianity knows about this. They know that the teachings of Jesus is to love thy neighbor, the Good Samaritan story. But what does the average Christian do? He hates immigrants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why is that? is because the, the Christian is not operating out of his higher self or his mind. He's operating off of his gut instincts. He's operating out of the uh, territorial instinct. And there the politicians are to grind it in 
Make them afraid. Keep yourself in that reptilian mind. Don't grow up. Don't grow out of it. And so those people for sure don't have any understanding about what the extent of the human mind is. It's yeah. only when we open the mind and see what's capable, uh, that we're capable of. And so these are the four imponderables. And this last one is really an important one because we really don't have a clue of what the individual is capable of. Before you do that, let me put the charger on. I'm going to take off the headphones. Okay. Okay, so um, basically we've, we've talked about these four imponderables, but we can put these four imponderables back into the context of the, of, that we can forget about the past and forget about the future, forget about the causes of things in the past, forget about where things are going, and just keep opening up to see what's going on now most specifically in regard to the Four Noble Truths, which means looking for the danger so that we can avoid it. This becomes the mantra for the, the Sotapan, in fact, would be uh, the looking for the danger, because what he's going to see is the danger in sensuality, the danger in the ownership of goods. He's also going to see the danger in not liking things, the danger of being angry, the danger of wanting to fix the society. That in fact, uh, is very Dhamma that I saw on the, the walls in, in uh, Washington, D.C. when I was there. And it's a, it's a line drawing photo or a picture of a guy standing in a pond or in a, in a swamp and he's surrounded by alligators in the four corners with other alligators still looking at him and eyeing him. And the bottom of the, or the caption is, when you're up to your hips in alligators, it's hard to remember your original intention was to drain the swamp. It's hard to remember when you're up to your hips in alligators that your original intention was to drain the swamp. Yeah. Think about that. In other words, now that we're in the swamp, yeah. we really can see the danger. When we have the idea that we're here to drain the swamp, can't see the danger. All we can see is the benefit of let's get this swamp drained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guess what? You cannot drain the swamp. The yeah. alligators won't let you. Just get out. Just get out of there. Get out of the swamp. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <You're in danger. laughs> yeah, exactly. So back to Catlin to see that it's dangerous to be around people not wearing masks. And it's even more dangerous to get angry at them because they're not wearing a mask. Yeah. The right thing to do is to get away from them, to get out of the swamp. Don't go into the swamp to try to make people wear their masks during Corona-19. <laughs> That's a losing cause. Yeah, yeah, it is. 
it really it and that's the whole looking for the effect of the end result is the same thing as what people do when they go to school mm-hmm. like we go to school and then we end up looking for like the final or a girlfriend or something or 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 for me and i guess it's not that personal but it's like um like uh, i've been smoking pot since i was like a teenager like a young teenager and for the first time i realized that i think it's better just to give it up so it was a like i can do without it like i can be happy without it like i don't need it anymore once once you see the danger of it yeah because i can't lie to my, i used to lie because i was like maybe i can do it like enlightened <laughs> or something mm-hmm. or like you know like that idea of like it's not if i'm aware it's not craving you know like no that's not true <laughs> not just awareness right like it's doing something too and like interacting with it um but yeah it was really weird because like i've been smoking that since i was like 14 it's like mm-hmm. it's like a ritual like a cigarette or something like you know like boom i do it and that's it but yeah well, in the beginning, you could see the benefit or you could see the uh, uh, the joy in it. But when you start to see the danger in it, now you've got new eyes to look and you can yeah. see both the danger and uh, the delight. And so you can make better choices because you can see what's really going on. Yeah, it's weird because I've always been a really big advocate of it. <laughs> like in the sense of like always giving like always telling people hey this is great this is like and I, it, one of the major things that I knew it was it was kind of a lie it was a subtle lie is because I kept saying it was okay but like what does that even mean it's okay like are you comfortable just doing the same thing why not just why can't you like I, I told myself like how far can you go with be, just being happy without the the old stuff that you have. So like I threw out all this stuff that I use, like, it's weird. Like, it's it's weird because even now, like I am like, I don't even go to YouTube. I'm like, I think about it. I'm like, wait, why am I going? Like, it's like a, uh, like a, again, it's like automatic. Like, it's like, I don't even try. Like, it's weird because I used to force it. I tried to force it. And now everything is happening naturally. It will happen more naturally when we see the dukkha. Generally, what happens when it's a war or a fight in it is, is that when we hear from somewhere else, oh, that's dangerous, or it's dukkha, now we put it into our list of rules, rites, rules, rituals, and things like that. And so now the superego turns that old tape on, oh, pot's bad for you. And that's what you hear. You hear that it's bad for you, but you do not see it for yourself. Mm -hmm. Once you see what's going on for yourself, then you don't need the old tapes from the parents or the teachers or whoever said pot's bad for you because you can see it for yourself. Yeah. And I think like, like, like for myself, it was more like, it was just like, I'm like, what am I aiming for? Am I aiming for freedom from all habits or am I not? Like, so it was kind of like mm-hmm. a question. It was kind of like a question of like you said, like, do you want it or don't you? And that's the moment where you have the choice to recognize with wisdom. 
that this is just confusion. This is just, you're in the alligator pond. There is another story that I have for that, and that is the idea that uh, mom goes into the kitchen and she smells the garbage. And so she tells her teenage son, go take out the garbage. Because mom told him to take out the garbage, now it's a chore to do. He does take out the garbage, but it's a lot of work. Ho, hum, got to take it out. But if mom had not been home and he and the son was at home and he goes into the kitchen and he can smell the stink of the garbage himself. And he says, wow, got to get rid of this stuff. Now he's going to take the garbage out and he can do it easy, not hard. As he can see the danger himself before he just heard it secondhand from mom. And so now it's a lot of work. So this is what it would be exactly that same thing with pot smokers is when they can see the danger, when they can smell. (laughs) Sorry about that analogy. (laughs) When they can smell how bad it stinks, then they can do something about it. And it really is like for me, it was more like I'm at work, you know, I'm anywhere, you know. I'm I'm like a tantric, you know, sadhu just getting in there and the chill. I'm like, it's mm. it's like, you know, it, it was it was like when I'm bored, you know, boom, or just to feel, just to do it. But really, like, is there such a thing as just to, or like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no such thing. Like in that sense of like, there's just you know, boom, like, you know, like I just do it because that's who I am. Like that's the whole, the whole gamut of it. And, and, but even then, cause I've had people ask me like, because in America it's very popular now to mix, you know, meditation with drugs basically. And it's, uh, I, at first that was my, like, that was the belief. And then it changed over time because of the practice, um, because it was just making me dull ultimately. I'm sorry to tell myself, that, you know, but it's true. It was making me kind of dull, like, and less energy, you know, like that. Well. That's a, a whole topic that's worth a long talk about, would be drugs, especially and be prescription drugs. Because I need to clear that up for myself mm-hmm. as well. Because in the past, that's been a big topic for me, like associating these ideas with Buddhism, things like that. Well, first off, with the Buddha, the Buddha is looking at it from the sense of um, alcohol causes heedlessness. But that many of the pharmaceuticals that we have nowadays didn't occur in the time of the Buddha. So we don't have any wisdom of the Buddha to apply to that stuff other than to look at the rationales behind it. Now, one of the things that I know for sure, uh, because of a lot of experience on this, that, that many people who are in psychiatric situations who go to the psychiatrist and are given, oh gosh, there's Depakote, Haldol, Thorazine, Navane, a whole group of uh, medicines that are given as psychiatric drugs, that the people who are given these drugs hate them Mm -hmm. they do not and yet the the people who work in the facilities like the drugs effects upon the people 
because now they're not so active. They're they're dull. The yeah. drugs intentionally, that's what they're for, is to dull the patient down, but the patients don't like these drugs. Yeah. Now, in modern in modern society, mostly what it goes like is is that people go to the doctor when they feel bad, and the doctor will give them a prescription, maybe of more than one pill. And that very few people will do anything about it other than taking the medicine that they're prescribed. Some of them will do it on a sparse basis. But the important thing is, is that they are not doing the proper research that they need to do. The first thing they need to do is to take every one of these medications and Google it to see what's going on with that drug. Why did the doctor give me this drug? Why am I taking that drug? The next thing to do is to experiment with these drugs to find out if you've got three drugs and you feel bad, you don't know which one of them is causing it. So you need to experiment with your medication to find out what effect that medication is having. And if it's beneficial and has the reason that the doctor gave you for it, then go ahead and do it. An example of that would be blood pressure medicine because they call blood pressure the silent killer. But you can, in fact, take certain medications that are given and then take the blood pressure 20 minutes later to see if it's changed. So there are uh, things that we can do to test the medications. Many people take medications blindly because the doctor gave it to us. And that's exactly the same thing as the doctor saying, marijuana is bad for you, don't smoke it. And what do you do? You put that as a should in the mind rather than experimenting for yourself to find out for sure. Yeah. So this is what we need to do with these drugs is have the, cri- the right kind of criteria. Is, is this wholesome medications for me or is it not wholesome medication? And if it is, then we can continue to take it. And if not, we stop taking it. It's not doing what it was either intended to do or it's got side effects yeah and 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 i think um you're from like your generation is like 60s and 70s right so like that was a generation of like the outbreak of experimenting with different drugs and medication and and thinking that that was the way to freedom or whatever and a lot of people still think that (laughs) yeah and i experimented with that and and it doesn't, I mean, it, sure, it gives you feelings that you never had before. But if know. it anything, those medications or those drugs will give people a different perspective, a different way of looking at it. The question is, when they come off the drugs, can they remember to keep looking at what's going on in the world? Now no, that they've had a different <laughs> view. Huh? Usually it's no. Like that, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for me, it helped when I was young. But now, like, there's no need because I got what I needed from it. But, um, yeah, it's it's weird. But this whole this whole practice. Besides that, though, um, back to the what we were talking about. Um, all of those. those to see four, the danger in those drugs is basically what I'm saying that we don't take them just because we're given them, or because we think that they're going to be delightful that we need to actually do that investigation for any medications that you take or anything else. Yeah, it was, 
I mean, even as a child, when, when they try to give me prescriptions for depression, like I, I, I remember I told my mom I got it and I threw it in the toilet and I said, if I'm not, if I'm going to not be depressed, it's going to be by my, my own, my own self, like my own effort or whatever. Okay. Did you ever take any of that medication? No. Didn't even take it. You knew it was bad for you before you even took it, huh? Yeah, because I was like, this can't be true. Like, there's no way these doctors are going to give me this back and everything's just going to be okay. Like, that's, that's like, that's the like sign of the trap. Like, to me, at least as a kid, it was just, it made sense. Like, there's no way these people are telling the truth. Well, there's a certain amount of medical science that is, oh, we need a pill for that because I'm not going to be a good doctor otherwise. Exactly. That's what it was. I didn't get any help. And they kept giving everybody drugs, like, no, like Seroquel and stuff like that. And that's horrible. Well, that's what's happened. In fact, I, um, I've heard that there was one pharmaceutical company that lobbied to get one little thing changed in one law. And all of a sudden, then they were out pushing um, Oxycontin and other uh, opioids to the doctors to get everybody up on it because all of the people were willing to take it because everybody has pain and they were looking for a painkiller. Well, guess what? They killed a whole lot more than the pain. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And you've got a, a, a nation that is dying. A lot of people are dying over um, uh, their association with the drugs that, um, that the doctors were pushing. So, yes, it's dangerous. People need to look at what they're, they're taking, make sure that it's got some value and benefit and not just delicious. Yeah, and I think when you're trying to give a young kid drugs, it just doesn't look right. I don't know. It was it just to me, it just didn't make sense. Like, I, I knew I wasn't so messed up that I needed to, like, like, get that in my mind. Like, you know, put all those chemicals in my brain. You know, that, that wasn't good for me. Which is weird that I knew that at that age. But, you know, I think a lot of kids know a lot of things. We don't give credit. Okay. Well, the theme today has been to look at what we're doing, to wake up to the danger, and to see the cause and effect relationships. And we, then we've added the four imponderables on top of that to recognize that that we need to stay in the here now, to keep investigating, uh, that we don't take drugs because we've got a prescription for the drugs from the past. We take the drug because we have knowledge that that medicine is going to be of some value to us. And we experiment. We look for the effects of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is... Uh, I mean, there's nothing to say except I'll keep practicing and keep being happy and satisfied. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, Dennis, well, we'll see you later then. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Damarato. Keep watching.